Right. Before we jump into our passage in 2 Corinthians this morning, we're going to talk about what it is. Before we talk about what it is, uh, we're going to talk about it with our young ones, our kids, uh, let you know what this passage is about, what the sermon is going to be about. So uh, I'm going to tell you a little story. It's a true story. Uh, it's about a kid. Let's call him uh, William F. That's too obvious. Okay. Let's call him W. Fox. Uh, he went to camp once. Uh, I think this was a couple of years ago. Uh, he went for two weeks. Okay, William goes to camp for two weeks, and he has a great time, awesome time. Then he comes home, and his mom gets his stuff in the house, and she opens up his trunk to find it has not been touched. Kids, in the trunk, you know, you pack for like two weeks. Nothing has been touched. Because William has not changed his clothes or taken a shower in two weeks. Now, did William stink? Ooh, William didn't think so. When everyone, you know, when they told him, you know, they smelled it in the car and then they get home and they realize like, oh my gosh, this is not like a day's or morning's worth of stink. This is two weeks worth of stink. William, you stink. He's like, no, no, I don't. I smell like I always smell. That is like our sin, kids. That's like our sin. We walk around, we're like, oh, I don't stink. And, and, and we ha- like, someone has to tell us we stink. And what do you think? The thing that tells us from God that we stink with sin, it's called the law. Okay? It's, and the law are like God's commands of do this, don't do this. Okay, and what that tells us is like, oh man, God said to do this, and I, I don't always do that. Or he says, don't do this. I do that a lot. Uh, so the law, God's law, tells us that we stink with sin. Now, kids, what is the one thing that can clean us from that stink of sin? The one thing. Jesus, Colby, nails it on the head. Jesus, Jesus is the one thing, the only person who can, we can't do it. You cannot go take a shower, scrub, scrub, scrub. You cannot be so, 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 so good, or I'm just going to be good, I'm going to be better, I'm going to be better, I'm going to try harder today. That will not get the stink of sin off of you, ever. Jesus has to do it. Jesus actually has to take your stink on himself, and he gives you his cleanliness. So, when we ask this question of like, hey, how do I know if I am going to heaven? It's the best question ever. Like, how do I know if I'm going to heaven? The answer to that question, kids, it does not start with, well, I know I'm going to heaven because I blah, 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 blah. Because I did this or this or this. The answer to the question, how do I know I'm going to heaven, starts with because Jesus. Francis took it from there. Because Jesus. Because of what Jesus has done for you in his life and in his death on the cross when he takes all of your stink on him. That cleanses you. That saves you. And Jesus is what changes you more and more and more in this life to actually look more and more like him. That's what we're going to talk about today in our summer series in 2 Corinthians. This is the letter, this is the second letter that the Apostle Paul has written to the church in Corinth. Uh, We covered 1 Corinthians maybe about a year ago, uh, last fall, 1 and 2 Corinthians. They are written to the same church, but they are very different letters. 
1 Corinthians deals with like a series of problems that, that the church has been asking Paul. So like one right after another, he addresses, he addresses these problems. 2 Corinthians is really just about one big problem. One big problem. Uh, and that is uh, that the church no longer likes Paul because they don't like his gospel. So because they don't like his message, they don't like Paul, and so they've rejected Paul. And so Paul is writing to them because it's not about Paul. It's about in rejecting him. The really, really crucial thing is, the really important thing is, they're rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is writing to them uh, because, unfortunately, they're listening to bad teachers who are telling them not to listen to Paul, not to listen to this gospel, but that there is another way of glory. That's where we're going to pick up in the third chapter of 2 Corinthians. And we're going to start in verse 3. Please stand for the reading of God's word. So Paul, writing to the church, says, You show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts, such as the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we're sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The Word of the Lord. Please be seated. So, there's a fight going down in Corinth. It, it is a fight for the church. Paul claims that his ministry is the one that is spreading the glory of God. Those opposing Paul back in that church in Corinth, they laugh, when Paul, they laugh at that idea that Paul is spreading the glory of God. And they mock Paul. As in, like, Paul, you're a mess. Like, personally, like personally Paul, you are constantly suffering. You're either in trouble in one form or another, or you're sick. Okay? And your ministry is a mess. You know, you're constantly being run out of town by those you preach to, if you're not getting beaten and imprisoned by them. 
And that's because you've got nowhere to go because you get kicked out of the synagogues because your own Jewish people reject you. So those opposing Paul, they claim that their ministry is the one that is spreading the glory of God. So they mock Paul, and Paul mocks them. Later in this same letter, we're going to get to it in chapter 11, Paul sarcastically refers to these opponents as, quote, super apostles. Okay? And he wants to admit, yes, they are impressive. Like these super apostles are, they're more eloquent than Paul. They are definitely more self-confident. They, they do not appear weak. They really do have it together. And that's part of their message. As in like, their message is, Paul's a loser, so God could not be with him. Okay, look at us. We're awesome, and that's how you know God is with us. If you believe in God and do good, life will go well for you like it does for us. So Paul's opponents, their message is it's prosperity, it's health, it's wealth, it's success, it's that message. And we today usually refer to this false message as a prosperity gospel You could also call this thing the prosperity law because their message is if you follow the law, that is Moses' law, and if you're a good person and if you do good like us, God will reward you in life. And that is why Paul goes off here comparing his ministry to the ministry of Moses. Paul says his ministry is more glorious than Moses' ministry. And it's not so much, he's not so much playing the comparison game as the contrast game. Paul's ministry, he says, Paul says, his ministry is a ministry of life and righteousness. But Paul says Moses' ministry, was, uh, his ministry of the law is a ministry of death. Verse 7. Verse 9, he says, it was a ministry of condemnation. Verse 11, it was a ministry that was always temporary. And excuse me, but look at the expiration date. It is long expired. Dang, Paul. Like, dang. Okay, so uh, Paul says, yes, but there was still glory in the law's ministry of death. And that begs the question, where was the glory of God in the law back in the day? Think of the law, the Ten Commandments, okay? The law showed God's, it shows God, it showed God's holiness and his power. It it like, it, it defined right and wrong, good and evil. And it, it also promised that God would uphold justice. That's good. You know, his holiness It showed God's perfection. The law showed God's one standard of living, perfection. Okay, and his power, it showed his power. It promised blessing on all law keepers, and it threatened judgment on all law breakers. So, yeah, there was the glory of God in the law. But that glory of God in the law was to be feared, Because God was totally holy and his people were not. Because his people were lawbreakers, not law keepers. 
And this is why everyone kept their distance. Like when God comes in glory on Mount Sinai, he frees them from, uh, from Egypt, brings them to Mount Sinai where he's going to give Moses the Ten Commandments, and he comes down on Mount Sinai. Everyone keeps their distance from God. Everyone keeps their distance from the tabernacle when they build the tabernacle, and that's where God's glory comes down. Everyone keeps their distance uh, from the temple, you know, in the Holy of Holies, because that's where God's glory dwells. Uh, so everyone keeps their distance, you, and you get a real taste of this right at the beginning in Exodus 34, after Moses has been meeting with God, and he gets the law, it says this, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the law in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. And that light, that visible light of his face, it was so awesome when he came down that the people saw Moses and they were afraid to come near him because of that visible glory. So, and Paul brings this up, that's why Paul had to put on a veil uh, uh, over his face. He had to wear a veil wherever he went around the people because his face was so scary. It was like looking into the blinding sun. People couldn't bear it. The visible awesomeness, too much. God in his glory had to be kept at a distance because his glory threatened and actually did destroy sinners. This is why Paul can say the law was a ministry of glory and a ministry of death and condemnation. The law, it exposed your sin and it condemned you for it. Moses' ministry of the law, it could not bring life. It could only bring punishment. The law could not save. But the problem was not the law. The problem was people who did not perfectly fulfill the law. And that was the point. Isn't it like the Mosaic law was supposed to convict Israel of their sin and their total inability to satisfy God's these righteous demands. And so the law was supposed to drive the sinner to the grace of God, to God begging mercy. The law is given to show their inability to obtain God's ultimate blessings of eternal glory simply by law-keeping. It was supposed to show them you can't do it. It was not given them to encourage them to think that they could get eternal life by law-keeping. And some, some today, they try to argue that, oh, this would be super confusing to the Israelites because if God gave them the law and said, hey, do this and you'll get blessing, don't do this and you'll get cursing, uh, that would just be, that would be so, so confusing because they would start to actually think they could earn eternal life by keeping the law. It's the exact opposite. The whole reason God gave them the law it was in order to shut Israel up under sin, show them that they could not earn anything good from God through the law, and then therefore beg for grace and mercy. So what? Okay, here's the so what for you, for me, today, so what? Right now, it's this. You are never, ever, ever going to fix someone with the law. You will not fix your son, you will not fix your daughter with the law. You will not fix your spouse. You will not fix your marriage with the law. You will not fix your family. You will not fix your friendships with the law. You will kill people with the law. 
if all you say to people, old or young, if all you say to them is, do this, don't do this, you are killing them. You're not changing them. You're not saving them. Because all the law can do is show you how you fail to measure up. I mean, think of let's parents, let's think how, how do parents, and sons and daughters of parents, join us in this, how do parents teach their kids to be honest and not to lie? Well, first, they play on, they play on fear. They play on your fear and they say, well, don't lie or you'll get caught. Your teacher will catch you. The police will catch you. God will catch you. Worse, I will catch you. Crime doesn't pay. Your sins will find you out. And then parents play on kids' pride. So fear and then pride. Tell the truth because you don't want to be like those liars. Okay? Get your kids to be more moral by putting them, by getting them to hate a certain kind of people. Liars. Uh, and then the last step is actually to amp up the pride play and say, you know, tell the truth or you're not going to be able to look at yourself in the mirror. Like, be good or you're just going to end up hating yourself. And if your parents ever actually caught you lying, uh, then comes the shame. You liar. How could you, like, how, how can you respect yourself? And, uh, you know, all the parents in here are like, well, yeah, that's parenting. Um, like, when I hear Jax and Peyton and Maisie fighting in the next room, I, I raise my voice to the necessary volume because I can't leave my work. Um, and I say, as authoritatively and threateningly as I can, you better be kind to each other. Or you're in big trouble. And then I go back to praying and reading the Bible and <laughs> writing this sermon. I, I, I can throw the law at my kids all I want, and that is not going to change them. Well, it, 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 actually, it'll just make them more fearful and more prideful. And you can make this mistake... <clears throat> You can make this mistake with the New Testament too. You can make this mistake with Jesus. You can take people to Jesus and you can kill people with Jesus. Because Jesus said things like, do this, don't do this. And you can tell people and you can tell yourself, just be like Jesus. Like here's Jesus, here's your example. You need to be more loving like Jesus. You need to, you need to be more joyful like Jesus. You need to be more forgiving like Jesus. You need to be more meek like Jesus. And if that's all you tell people, you are killing them with Jesus. Another pastor, South Carolina, Brian Habig, he, he, uh, I heard him put it this way once, like, how super helpful is it uh, if you've got an addiction and you tell someone about that addiction and they tell you to stop doing that and you say, yeah, I can't. And they say, well, th then you're guilty. It, it's true. It's not helpful. It doesn't help. It just leads to despair, and it leads you right back to your addiction. Like, how super-duper hel helpful is it uh, if you tell someone that you're depressed, and they tell you that you need to be more joyful, be more joyful for all that God has done for you, and you say, I can't. And they say, well, then you're guilty. 
It just leads to more discouragement and more sadness and more darkness. That is trying to change with the law. Do this, don't do this. I can't, you're guilty. That is death. And Paul says that his ministry, it is not that. He says his ministry of the gospel is a ministry of the spirit that gives life, a ministry of righteousness. The law kills, the gospel saves. So the gospel is more glorious. The only ministry that will save people, that will change people, that will save you, that will change you, it is the gospel of Jesus. That he has taken your guilt for all of your sin and there is now no condemnation for you, no matter what, if you simply believe in Jesus. Think about that. If you believe in Jesus, there is no condemnation for you now, no matter what. And we hear that and we think, ooh, dang, if you tell people that they are beyond condemnation for any wrong that they do because of Jesus, they're going to live like heathens. Paul says, if you don't tell the gospel to people, they are going to live like heathens. I mean, some unbelievers, they can cover their life with a veneer of success and niceness, but inside, they are heathen through and through. Now, let's say this. The gospel, this is not what Paul is saying. The gospel does not mean, sorry, this is what Paul is saying. The gospel does not mean that you don't change and you just do you know, whatevs because you're forgiven and there is no condemnation. Today's uh, June 19th. Uh, it's also called Juneteenth. It marks, it celebrates a crucial moment in Texas history. The uh, uh, Emancipation Proclamation was issued in the fall of 1862, and it was supposed to be enacted January 1, 1863. It was not enacted because the war was, it was still going on, and you know no one was certain of how the war was going to finally end. But even after the end of combat, you know after Appomattox, slavery continued here unabated in Texas. And on June 18, 1865, this is more than two years later, 1865, a, a general was sent to Galveston with 2,000 troops. And then the next day, June 19th, from the balcony of this notable house, he reads this proclamation. This is just part of it. It says, the people of Texas are informed that in accordance with the Emancipation Proclamation from the Executive of the United States, all slaves are free. This involves an absolute equality of personal rights and rights of property between former masters and slaves. And then addressing freed slaves, he says, they are informed that they will not be supported in idleness, either there or elsewhere. So June 19th, Juneteenth, became a celebration all over the South. You are not a slave anymore. And that does not mean, therefore, embrace idleness. It means live because you are free. So if you regularly hear God saying to you, you do not measure up. I know you believe in my son, but you are such a bad parent. I know you believe in my son, but you constantly think about yourself, not other people. I know you believe in my son, but you are mean. 
I know that you believe in my son, but you are greedy. If, if that is all you hear him saying, you've got to hear this again. You have been liberated. You are free. Come out of slavery, the slavery of the law. And here's how. Where do you see God's glory the most? Where do you see God's glory in the gospel? It is at the cross. At the cross, you see God's holiness. You see his perfect standard of justice being upheld as the full weight of his wrath falls on our sins. And at the cross, you see his mercy and you see his grace because that wrath that falls on our sins, it does not fall on us, it falls on Jesus who stands in our place to exhaust that wrath. At the cross, you see God's love for his people. You see his love for you. At the cross, you see his power and you see his dominion over sin and over death as Jesus dies for us and he takes our condemnation and he doesn't remain in the grave. He is resurrected to glory. At the cross, which leads to his resurrection and our resurrection, you see ever, you see the everlasting results of his work. You see new life. And I'm talking resurrected physical life. Visible, too awesome to behold, eternal life. And it's not just a future glory. Future glory is coming. It's not just future glory. When you are confronted face to face, as it were, with the glory of that cross, that changes you. That changes you. As in, there is, yes, there is glory in the law, but the law does not free you to be in God's presence but the gospel does. The gospel does for you to be in God's presence, and when you come into his presence now through Jesus, you don't die. What happens? God's glory now transforms you more and more in glory. The gospel is more glorious than the Emancipation Proclamation because while the proclamation, it freed slaves, it did not overcome any temptation to idleness. The gospel not only frees you, it actually is the power for change. If you want someone to change, if you want to change, you've got to go to the cross of Jesus. And yes, you tell people, yes, you tell people what is required. You tell people what justice looks like. You tell people what, what is right, what is wrong. You tell people what sin is, and then you tell them that we cannot do what is required of us. We cannot perfectly fulfill the law, and therefore, we cannot follow that path of the law to glory. If you want people to change, you have to tell them of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And you've got to tell them to put their faith in Jesus, to look to Jesus for grace and mercy. That's what you've got to do, too. In coming face to face with your crucified and your risen Savior through the means of worship, Things like the preached word, things like prayer, things like fellowship, things like song, things like sacraments. Through these simple means, you are becoming more and more like Jesus because the Spirit is at work through these simple means in you, changing you. The presence of God, you don't just come into his presence, his presence comes into you. 
if you want people to change, uh, if you want to change, you have to go to the cross. This is how unbelievers become believers. This is how believers grow in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. This is how Christians are led to do good works. You gotta remember, repentance is not turning from doing bad things to doing good things. Repentance is turning from the bad and turning to Jesus. If you would be saved, if you would be changed, you cannot look to the law. You cannot look to yourself. You look to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel, which is nothing less than the power unto salvation. We thank you uh, for our Lord and Savior. Bless us to not be ashamed of this gospel, but to run to it in the morning and in the afternoon and in the evening as much as we can in between every day. Lord, bless us to hold out this gospel to each other. There is no other message. Father, help us to believe. Help us to see the cross bigger today than it was yesterday. Lord, give us hope and give us assurance because Jesus has done what we cannot do. We, we pray that as we run to Jesus, as we look to him in faith, that even when we don't feel it, we would believe that we are more and more being changed, that you are transforming us more and more into the image of your son, that one day you are coming back where we will no longer walk by faith, we'll get to walk by sight, and we'll get to see, actually with eyes, the, the working of your salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.